This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Due to the graphic nature of this week's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual situations, abuse, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Paul Snyder was upset. His wife, 20-year-old Dorothy Stratton, was about to be crowned Playboy's 1980 Playmate of the Year. But here, in the crowded tent, he couldn't get near her. He could barely see her, and he got the distinct impression that Dorothy didn't mind that he'd been shut out. He downed another glass of scotch and then pushed his way through the crowd. Some people stared. Others looked away. Hollywood, he learned, was a fickle place. Once the A crowd decided you didn't fit in, there was nothing you could do to change its mind. Finally, Paul reached Dorothy's table. He slid into an open seat beside her and reached for her hand, but she shrank from his touch and pulled her hand away as if he were a stranger, as if he were just another leering fan. Paul's suspicions were confirmed. She didn't love him anymore. His hurt curdled to rage. He'd show her. He'd show them all. He might have looked small time, but he'd leave his mark on Hollywood one way or another. Hi, I'm Lainey, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're exploring the troubled relationship between Dorothy Stratton and Paul Snyder. We'll see why Dorothy stayed with him as her career took off in 1980, despite multiple red flags. Next week, we'll see how Dorothy's burgeoning fame and independence led to tragedy and how its impact reverberates even today.
1978, 18-year-old Dorothy Hoogstraten was a high school senior working at a Dairy Queen in Vancouver, British Columbia. Her single mother struggled to provide for Dorothy and her two younger siblings, so for the last four years, Dorothy worked at the DQ to help out. By all accounts, she was hardworking, intelligent, and stunning, a fact that she was completely oblivious to. Until, during one of her shifts, she met 26-year-old Paul Snyder. He walked into the shop wearing a long fur coat, lizard skin boots, and gold and diamond jewelry. Dorothy was dazzled. She had never seen anyone so sophisticated. He asked Dorothy her name and they chatted briefly. Then he drove off in a flashy black sports car. Dorothy never expected to see him again. But only a few days later, Paul called the shop. He wanted to take Dorothy out. Paul Snyder dropped out of school at the age of 14. His teen years were spent hanging around the biker gangs and pimps of Vancouver's east side. He knew he wanted to be rich, but a real job didn't interest him. Instead, he gravitated towards various scams and hustles. Most of them involved women. He tried pimping and groomed girls to be strippers, but neither was that profitable. Eventually, he turned to promoting auto and cycle shows, but a side hustle was never far from his mind. When he met Dorothy, he found it. As he told a friend after meeting her, that girl could make me a lot of money. On their first date in the winter of 1978, Paul showed up at Dorothy's house in a long leather coat and more diamond jewelry. He drove her to his bachelor pad, where she took in the skylights, fur rugs, and platform bed. He cooked her dinner, poured her sparkling wine, played songs on his guitar, and told her she was beautiful. Dorothy knew that she was being swept off her feet. In her journal, she wrote, I was being sweet-talked by an expert, but I wanted to hear more. And who could blame her? Her previous boyfriend had never paid this much attention to her. Paul bought her clothes, makeup, and jewelry, luxuries she'd never been able to afford. There was only one problem. Nobody liked him. Not her brother, her sister, or her boss. Her mother, Nellie, couldn't stand him. They all thought Paul was rude, entitled, and pushy. He put his feet up on the coffee table at Dorothy's house and flirted with other women right in front of her. Dorothy's best friend asked her how she could stand it, but Dorothy had the same answer for everyone. Nobody knew the real Paul. Behind closed doors, he was a softie, and he made her feel special. Before I continue with Paul's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Psychologist Dr. Andrea Bonner has pinpointed certain behaviors used by those who wish to control their partners. Early on in a relationship, behaviors like attention, affection, and nourishment all seem positive, things we want in a relationship. But they can also be powerful tools used to manipulate others. When other people start to complain or point out troubling facets of the relationship, the victim is unable to see them. 
Everything Paul did in those first few months of dating Dorothy, showering her with attention, buying her gifts, even cooking for her, made her his biggest defender. But his most effective weapon was allowing himself to be vulnerable. A guy who strummed the guitar and told her how he truly felt about her couldn't be that bad. When Dorothy claimed that Paul was actually a big softy, she thought she was seeing the real him, but it was all a facade. In the end, her friends' and family's instincts were right. After dating just a few months, Paul told Dorothy that he wanted her to pose nude. Playboy magazine was on a hunt for its 25th anniversary playmate. The prize was $25,000. Paul thought Dorothy was exactly the type Playboy was looking for, the sexy, gorgeous girl next door. Dorothy didn't want to pose nude. She was extremely modest and worried about how her mother would react. But Paul wouldn't take no for an answer. They argued. Even when Dorothy broke down in tears, Paul didn't stop. He minimized her feelings. Posing nude wasn't a big deal until finally, in May of 1978, she gave in. Paul brought Dorothy to a photographer named Ken Honey, who already had a track record with Playboy. Ken needed Dorothy's mother to sign a consent form because Dorothy was only 18, a year younger than Canada's age of consent. Nellie, Dorothy's mother, was in Europe, but somehow Paul procured a signature and left Dorothy alone with Ken for the photographs. At first, Dorothy was shy, but after only a few snaps, she relaxed and started to pose naturally. When the session was over, he had her fill out a questionnaire. In the space where it asked for her to give her ambitions, Dorothy wrote, to be a star of sorts. Already, Paul's grand talk had made an impression. Her photos arrived at Playboy on August 11, 1978, where photo editor Marilyn Grabowski took one look and knew that Dorothy had something interesting, innocence. Marilyn called Ken and asked if he could arrange for Dorothy to fly down to Los Angeles the next day. Dorothy was thrilled, but Paul was annoyed. He didn't like seeing Dorothy so excited by someone else's attention. And he didn't like that Playboy was only sending one plane ticket. After all, he was the reason she was given the opportunity in the first place. On August 13th, 1978, Dorothy boarded a plane to LA. It was the first flight of her life. Paul stayed in Vancouver, fuming. Paul wanted Dorothy to be a star but solely on his terms. When Dorothy took steps towards that ambition and away from him, he reacted with resentment. At the airport in Los Angeles, Dorothy was met by a waiting stretch limo. It took her to Playboy's headquarters on Sunset Boulevard, where she met the magazine's photo editor, Marilyn Grabowski. When Marilyn saw the tall, stunning blonde step out of the limo, she assumed Dorothy was a seasoned model. Then she spoke to her. 
She realized that Dorothy was, in her words, a total babe in the woods, not used to thinking that she was really beautiful. Dorothy went right into a session with Mario Casilli, Playboy's star photographer. After drinking a couple glasses of wine during the shoot, Dorothy began to relax. She even began to enjoy herself. But the true test to her confidence would happen afterward, when she got to the Playboy Mansion. When the limo pulled up in front of the entrance, Dorothy realized she was trembling. She'd never seen a building this stately before. She walked around to the back lawn where people had gathered to eat a late lunch. The jaded group took one look at this beautiful, vulnerable teenager and was instantly charmed. This included Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy. He said years later, she was the epitome of the girl next door, the sweetest person I ever met. Angelic, she lit up a room. All the corny phrases were true about Dorothy. It had only been one day, and already the gates of Playboy swung open wide for Dorothy, but she had no idea what she was walking into. A world of excess, hedonism, and abuse. When we return, Dorothy's entrance into the hedonistic world of Playboy complicates an already troubled relationship. Now, back to the story. In 1978, 18-year-old Dorothy Hoogstraten flew to Los Angeles for her first Playboy photo shoot. She sent her photos to the magazine at the insistence of her new boyfriend, 26-year-old Paul Snyder. He thought that she had the right look for the magazine. His instincts were right. When Playboy saw Dorothy's test shots, they flew her down to Los Angeles immediately. But on that first trip, Dorothy entered a world that she barely understood. Playboy was founded by Hugh Hefner in 1953. It was the first magazine of its kind. Pictures of naked women were nestled between articles on how to mix the perfect cocktail and short stories by Ian Fleming and Kurt Vonnegut. Playboy wasn't a nudie magazine. It was elegant entertainment for men. By the mid-1970s, America was having a love affair with sex, and Playboy was riding it all the way to the bank, sometimes selling over 5 million copies a month. The brand expanded into a line of clubs, casinos, and resorts. At the center of it all was founder Hugh Hefner. He padded around his mansion in silk pajamas carrying a Pepsi and a pipe, an ever-present smile on his face. He considered himself a fighter for sexual freedom, a liberator who was also a naughty libertine. He lived, entertained, and ran the Playboy empire from the Playboy Mansion, a 29-room estate in the hills near Bel Air. Built in the 1920s, it had an aviary, a zoo, and acres of manicured lawns. To the casual eye, it looked like a genteel English estate. Playmates and playmate wannabes were encouraged to spend time at the mansion, to mingle with the mostly male guests and enjoy a free meal. But there was an unspoken rule that women had to make themselves sexually available to guests or even to Hefner himself if they wanted to stay. 
Luann Fernald, a married playmate who became Dorothy's trusted friend and confidant, spoke of living at the mansion as a slippery slope. Women competed with each other to win the favor of Hefner and his inner circle, and it was, quote, a game where if you won, you lost. Dorothy was little prepared for this kind of world. She made sure to let people know that she was in a serious relationship to protect herself. But even her boyfriend had warned her that she might have to sleep with Hefner to seal the deal. Dorothy just focused on her work. She shot with Mario for three days. By the time she flew back to Vancouver, Playboy wanted her to come back as soon as possible to shoot for another three weeks. Paul was irritated. He'd barely been able to contain himself while she was gone. Now the thought of her leaving again, and this time for almost a month, made him more resentful. But Dorothy was undeterred. She quit her job in Vancouver and flew back to LA in late August of 1978. Paul responded with panic. He called everyone, all the time. Dorothy, Marilyn Grabowski, Mario Casilli. He wanted to know everything. Though his behavior was unpredictable and obsessive, Dorothy didn't seem to mind. As Marilyn Grabowski told 2020, Dorothy was always on the phone to Paul. She thought whatever success she was having, and it was embryonic at that point, was all due to Paul. It's possible Dorothy aligned herself with Paul for another reason. During these three weeks in August of 1978, she again stayed at the mansion. This time, she was even more aware of the seedy atmosphere. There is no evidence that she was ever sexually assaulted, but Dorothy wrote in her journal of this time. Sometimes I cried myself to sleep. A lot of men were entering my life all of a sudden and a lot of them wanted me. No one was ever pushy or forceful, but talk can be very powerful, especially to a mixed up little girl. To naive 18-year-old Dorothy, a controlling boyfriend like Paul offered some safety. The fact that he needed to keep tabs on her wasn't a red flag, it was probably welcome. And giving him credit for all of her success may have been a way of appeasing his jealousy. Dorothy returned to Vancouver in September of 1978. Her entire life had changed. In less than a month, she'd gone from working as a secretary at the telephone company to being one of Playboy's rising stars. Paul's predictions for Dorothy were coming true and at a rapid rate. He had to secure his position now before her star shine through his iron grip. He wasn't going to get edged out of his due he told Dorothy that it was time to get married. 18-year-old Dorothy wasn't ready for that. She was excited by the traction in her career, but she wasn't ready to break up with Paul either. She didn't want to be alone. A 2013 study by researcher Stephanie Spielman found that the fear of being single may cause people to stay in less than ideal relationships. She found that in the early stages of a relationship, those who fear being single may settle for less responsive and less attractive mates out of a fear of being alone. 
Studies have found that those who have lower than average self-esteem also have low comparison levels or expectations of relationships and will tolerate bad relationships for longer than others. Dorothy's self-esteem was likely affected at an early age by her father's abandonment. Studies have shown that children who are abandoned by a parent struggle more with self-esteem and feelings of self-worth than children who aren't. In the end, Dorothy told Paul that they could consider themselves engaged. Things were moving fast. She didn't have time to resist. Not to mention that in mid-September 1978, she learned that she would not be the 25th anniversary playmate. Rather, she would be Miss August 1979. Playboy was ready to spend the next several months photographing their future star. She would need to move to LA. As her newly minted fiance, Paul was going to join her. It was around this time that Dorothy made another big career decision. She shortened her name from Dorothy Hoogstraten to Dorothy Stratton. It sounded more like the name of a star. Dorothy and Paul were both ready to launch themselves into a life of fame and fortune when they landed in LA in October of 1978. Dorothy brought an anxious Paul to the annual Playboy Halloween party. He couldn't wait to be introduced to the Playboy sphere. He had reason to be excited. Everyone who had met Dorothy was eager to see the man who'd won her heart. But when Paul walked into the party, he didn't get the reaction he expected. In his white fedora, fur jacket, open silk shirt, and gold star of David necklace, Paul looked like a pimp. People didn't know whether it was a costume or not. This was Dorothy's fiance? The person most put off was Hugh Hefner. He thought this sleazeball went against his whole elegant gentleman brand. He made small talk with Paul and then wandered away as fast as he could. Paul, for his part, sensed that he didn't fit in. His brother Jeff later told Biography that the mansion made Paul feel inadequate. On one hand, he was thrilled to be allowed inside the gates, but he never truly felt like he belonged. A 1999 study by researchers at the University of Michigan found that a low sense of belonging is a key predictor of depression. Male depression, in turn, was found to be associated with a higher propensity towards domestic violence in a study by the University of Bristol. Paul's feelings of being shut out from the world Dorothy had entered and conquered exacerbated his natural insecurity. To cope with his feelings of inadequacy, he did whatever he could to foster his own success. Paul promoted wet t-shirt contests, wet underwear contests, and even John Travolta look-alike contests. Then he came up with an idea for a show put on by a troupe of male strippers. Paul brought the idea to his friend, Soman Steve Bonnergie, who owned Chippendales, at that point just a struggling nightclub in West LA. Bonnergie and his partners liked the idea of a male troupe Paul even designed the costume, a spin-off of what the Playboy bunnies wore, but for men, a bow tie, collar, and cuffs over a bare, muscled torso. They put on a few shows, which were a big hit. 
but the club owners eventually found a way to cut Paul out of the deal. He made no money on Chippendales, even when it became a successful franchise. Soon, it became clear that Paul's main source of income was going to be his fiance. He printed up business cards that said he was a manager, but Dorothy was his only client. He kept tabs on her the way a manager would. He watched her alcohol intake, forbade her to smoke or drink coffee, and sent her to Richard Simmons' aerobics classes to keep her weight down. When she went to acting classes, he did too, just to keep an eye on her. But to some, his obsession with her raised some red flags. Their roommate, Molly Bachelor, noticed that Paul openly bullied Dorothy. He read her mail, flirted with other women when she wasn't around, treated her like she worked for him. But Dorothy never complained, never seemed to argue. As Paul's career prospects floundered in early 1979, Dorothy's only seemed to rise. Paul didn't want to leave anything to chance. He knew he had Dorothy's loyalty now, but he could feel her starting to outgrow him. To make things more permanent, he told Dorothy that they had a lifetime bargain. Whatever profits she made, they shared them 50-50. He was sure she was going to be a star, and he wanted his part of the pie. Today, this kind of behavior is considered financial abuse, but in the 1970s, financial abuse between romantic partners was unheard of. Single women's financial rights, such as they were, were shaky. It wasn't until 1974 that credit card companies were forced to allow single women to open a credit card. Even domestic abuse wasn't considered a crime. As late as 1979, Courts considered what went on in the home between a man and wife private and not a matter for the criminal justice system. Dorothy felt intense pressure. On one hand, she had Paul's intense expectations to meet. On the other, she had playboys. Whether it was Paul Snyder or Hugh Hefner, both men had her on a leash. In the winter and spring of 1979, Dorothy uncovered a natural talent for acting in her classes. Soon, her teacher compared her to Marilyn Monroe. This didn't go unnoticed by Paul. As spring veered into summer and the launch of her August issue approached, Paul seized his moment. Why not get married? Now, before she went on tour, she'd already agreed to his lifetime bargain. Why not make it legal? Dorothy was thrown once again. Things were happening so fast. She didn't want to marry Paul, but she still believed she owed him all of her success. The folks at Playboy saw it differently. Marilyn Grabowski told Dorothy that she didn't owe Paul a thing. Whatever she became would be because of her, not Paul. Hefner told her that Paul had a pimp-like quality. He even ran a background check on him though it came up blank. But Dorothy was unable to listen to reason. Just as she had in the very beginning, she made excuses. She'd say, but Paul cares about me. I can't imagine being with anyone else. What most people didn't know was that Paul threatened to leave her if she didn't marry him. 
being alone was unthinkable for Dorothy. Her father had walked out on her at the age of three. She wouldn't be able to survive another man walking out on her too. So, on June 1st, 1979, Dorothy and Paul got married at the Silver Bell Chapel in Las Vegas. Paul was now legally entitled to half of Dorothy's earnings. When we return, we'll talk about Dorothy's romance with a famous director and how it brought Paul to his breaking point. Now, back to the story. By the fall of 1979, 19-year-old Dorothy Stratton was on the rise. Not even a year after her first nude photo session, she'd become a Playboy Playmate. Her August issue had flown off the stands. Her press tour of the States and of Canada had been a smash success. Now, Dorothy turned her ambitions to acting. Just as they had with her modeling career, doors opened swiftly for her. She stood apart from the hordes of beautiful blonde women hoping for stardom. Casting agents saw something different in Dorothy, vulnerability. Her first role was a walk-on in a movie called Americathon in the summer of 1979. A short while later, she signed with a film agent and got another role in Skate Town, USA. Then she took on the lead in a low-budget Canadian film called Autumn Born. Paul Snyder wasn't the only man in Dorothy's life excited by her movie career. Hugh Hefner had Hollywood dreams of his own. He'd never been able to make one of his playmates a legitimate actress. If he could, he'd wield real power in the entertainment ecosystem. Dorothy was as good a contender for this as he'd ever seen. Hefner made two key decisions concerning Dorothy in the fall of 1979. He gave Dorothy a running part in a TV special he produced with ABC called The Playboy Roller Disco and Pajama Party. When it aired to high ratings in November, Playboy made an announcement. Dorothy would be their Playmate of the Year for 1980. Paul was giddy. He got vanity plates that read Star 80 and put them on the Mercedes he bought with Dorothy's money. He found a house on Clarkson Road in West LA, where he hung photos of Dorothy all over the walls. But inside, Dorothy was starting to slip into despair. She felt suffocated in her marriage and exhausted by her commitments to Playboy. Towards the end of 1979, she started telling people that she wanted to leave Paul. But divorce would mean dealing Paul a financial blow that he wouldn't be able to handle. It was already hard enough on his ego that he was completely dependent on her. If she took that away, she didn't know what he might do. Luann Fernald and her husband Chip Clark became friends with the couple during the fall of 1979. Luann noticed that Paul was bossy, controlling, and had a wandering eye to boot, but it was her husband Chip who really saw Paul's true nature. On the days the two men spent hanging out, he'd watch Paul kick doors, start fights on the street, and throw food on the floor at restaurants if he didn't like the service. Luann said later 
that it was obvious that Paul was a ticking time bomb. Dorothy told her that she wanted to leave Paul around Christmas of 1979, but that she was afraid of hurting him. And though Dorothy didn't actually say this, Luann sensed that Dorothy might be afraid of the consequences. Just when Dorothy had started to reach her breaking point, she met someone who would offer her a way out, director Peter Bogdanovich. The 40-year-old filmmaker had won acclaim with his movies, The Last Picture Show and Paper Moon, but his personal life was a mess. On the set of The Last Picture Show, the director left his wife and two children for Sybil Shepherd, the 21-year-old ingenue. Public opinion turned on him. By 1979, Bogdanovich and Shepard were over and he was struggling to make a comeback. Bogdanovich was a frequent visitor at the mansion and spotted Dorothy there. They struck up a conversation. He learned that she was married, but not happily. He was casting a movie and asked her to audition. It wasn't long before she was cast in the film called They All Laughed. Already smitten, Bogdanovich rewrote the role and made it larger for Dorothy. She was the ideal ingenue, beautiful, innocent, and talented. Bogdanovich fell in love with Dorothy knowing that she was married but Dorothy assured him that it was in name only. She planned to leave Paul, exactly when, she didn't say. But she let Bogdanovich know that his feelings were mutual. They didn't do much more than kiss that winter of 1979, but Bogdanovich and Dorothy were primed to have an affair. Yet her feelings for Bogdanovich made her less tolerant of her unhappy marriage. Her relationship with Paul took an abrupt turn for the worse. In January of 1980, during her photo sessions for Playmate of the Year, Dorothy often returned from phone calls with Paul crying. Marilyn Grabowski said later that the same fragility she'd noticed the first day she met Dorothy had grown exponentially. She told Biography, I was very, very worried about her. That same month, Dorothy made another movie, Galaxina. Paul alienated the cast and crew with his outbursts and demands. The makeup people became used to seeing Dorothy arrive with a face swollen from crying. Paul craved Dorothy's success as any parasite would, but it only drew attention to what he knew was her greater economic power. To correct this, he did whatever he could to bully Dorothy. A 2018 study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that sexist heterosexual men may underestimate how much power they actually have in relationships, which can lead to more aggression against their female partners. While we have no evidence that he was physically harming Dorothy during this time, Paul's emotional abuse, financial abuse, and intimidation all qualified as domestic violence. What's heartbreaking is that while everyone was aware, nobody intervened. Dorothy's co-star, J.D. Hinton, befriended Dorothy while making Galaxina in early 1980. 
He noticed that when Paul wasn't around, Dorothy was social and happy, dancing to music. But in his presence, she retreated inward, withdrawn. One night, Inton went with the couple to dinner. He watched, shocked, as Paul began to hit on a couple of girls. He couldn't believe that a guy who made Dorothy call him to check in several times a day was now flirting with other women in front of her. Paul's attitude towards his wife revealed itself in another way. On one occasion, Hinton found himself alone with Paul in his apartment. He'd gone there at Dorothy's invitation to watch her on television. But when he arrived, she wasn't there yet. Paul picked up one of Dorothy's Playboy layouts and showed it to Hinton. He asked him what he thought. Hinton had no idea what to say. Staring at Dorothy's naked body was strange enough, but being asked to evaluate it by her husband was over the top. Finally, Paul answered for him. I think her breasts look real good, don't you? Hinton recoiled. He saw Paul Snyder for what he was, a snake who cared nothing about Dorothy as a person, only as a meal ticket. The only person who seemed to be able to pull Dorothy out of her trap situation was Peter Bogdanovich. She landed in New York in March of 1980 to shoot her role in They All Laughed. Dorothy was co-starring with Ben Gazzara, Audrey Hepburn, and John Ritter. Everyone in the Playboy sphere was thrilled, but Bogdanovich kept his romantic interest in Dorothy away from Hugh Hefner. He sensed that Hefner wouldn't be pleased. In his eyes, Dorothy belonged to him and Playboy. Paul somehow agreed to stay behind in Los Angeles during the film shoot. He drove Dorothy to the airport in a Rolls Royce he borrowed from their housemate and put her on the plane. But home by himself, he grew more and more anxious. Dorothy had hired a money manager before she left. Now her earnings went into a corporation. He still had access to her money, but he had to ask Dorothy for it. It panicked him. He could feel her slipping out of his grasp. He started making exercise benches and selling them through the classifieds, desperate for some income of his own. It was during this time that he saw a bondage bench in a sex shop. It retailed for around $300, over $900 today. Paul went home and recreated the object, but he couldn't bring himself to sell it. Instead, it stayed in his bedroom. He seemed unwilling to part with it. Mostly, Paul began to obsess over Dorothy and how to wring more money from the uncertain situation. Eventually, he hit on an idea. Find another pretty young girl and groom her to be the next Dorothy Stratton. He found a 17-year-old girl who lived in Riverside named Patty Lorman. She was no Dorothy, but he hoped he could introduce her to the Playboy crowd. Meanwhile, Dorothy and Bogdanovich continued their romance in New York. When Dorothy returned to LA for a press conference for Playmate of the Year, Luann noticed that Dorothy seemed worn, anxious, and tired. When Luann asked her about it, she said, 
I don't know what to do about Paul. I wake up in the morning and I'm so unhappy. I need a cigarette to calm down. It's all I have. Dorothy was too nervous to speak to Paul in person about a separation, but while on a promotional trip to Canada, she finally breached the idea to him in a letter. She wrote, it's time to let the bird fly. If you love me, you'll set me free. Paul responded by flying to Canada and fighting with her. With all her efforts to separate failing miserably, Dorothy went back to New York to Bogdanovich and to the movie. By the end of June, she had a lawyer send Paul a letter. She wanted a separation. Paul responded by clearing out their joint bank account. He found a divorce lawyer, Mike Kelly, who introduced Paul to a private investigator named Mark Goldstein. Paul told Mark he had a simple job, follow Dorothy. Dorothy and Bogdanovich returned to Los Angeles on August 1, 1980. As the plane touched down at LAX, Dorothy took his hand and admitted that she was scared. Bogdanovich, still oblivious to Paul's instability, assured her that all would be fine. She had his lawyer now. Until her divorce became final, she would live with him in his Bel Air home protected by gates. She wouldn't have to see Paul Snyder again. But she wanted to do the right thing by Paul. A part of her still believed she owed him. They met for lunch. She confessed her love for Peter Bogdanovich. He tried to tell her that he was just another Hollywood scoundrel who would use her up and discard her, but Dorothy didn't listen. She took a few items of clothing from the apartment and left, but not before promising to call him in just a few days. Then she went to the airport and picked up her 12-year-old sister Louise, who decided to come from Vancouver for a visit. Paul was devastated. When she finally called him a day late from a photo shoot, he was furious. Louise could hear him screaming through the phone. He sounded like a man on the verge of collapse, a man whose only companion left was the cold feeling of desperation. Dorothy begged him to stop. She cried, don't do this to me, Paul. Don't talk to me like this. Dorothy agreed to meet with him in person in a few days. She didn't want things to end like this. She wanted to be fair, to treat him with dignity. On the morning of August 14th, Dorothy woke up at Bogdanovich's house. She told her younger sister to stay home. She sensed that Paul would probably make a scene and she didn't want her sister to see any of it. She asked Louise not to tell anyone else where she was going. Then, she met with her money manager and asked how much she had saved. The manager told her that she didn't need to see Paul anymore, that she should let the lawyers handle it. She smiled and said that she wanted to remain his friend. Then, she scribbled down on a piece of paper a figure. It was half of all of her assets, what she planned to give Paul. She also withdrew $1,100 in cash a down payment of sorts for him. It was only fair. 
As she parked in front of the Clarkson house, she felt a sense of dread. His voice on the phone the other day had sounded crazy, disturbed. Maybe the money manager was right. Maybe she didn't owe him a face-to-face -face meeting. But she was an adult, she thought. She could handle her husband. She'd gotten herself into this. And now, she would get herself out. Lifetime bargain or no. She stepped out of the car, walked to the front door, and rang the doorbell. From a distance, investigator Mark Goldstein sat in his car. He watched the door open, he watched Paul greet Dorothy, and then he watched Dorothy go inside. When he was satisfied that all was well, he drove away. He was the last person to see either of them alive. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of the Dorothy Stratton story. We'll look at the crime, its devastating impact on Dorothy's friends and family, and the mystery that continues to this day of what really happened in Dorothy and Paul's final moments. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Joanna Philbin with writing assistance by Drew Cole. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs> <laughs>